Welcome to this week's message from Southland Church. We hope you enjoy this teaching by Pastor Tom Dick. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. My name is Tom Dick, for those who may not know me. Um, I preach every like three or four months, so there's like 100 people who join every three or four months, so if I haven't met you, I'm sorry. But my name is Tom Dick. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I mostly do resource development, although I work with the youth quite a bit too. And it's really fun to be here today. I was going to spend some time honoring Donovan. I, I was thinking about it. I thought, you know, I don't get up that often, so I just wanted to share some great stories about him. And, and, but he's not here, so uh, I'm not going to. Because <laughs> what's the point of making fun of someone if they're not around? So <laughs> all my jokes are becoming Ray Yoder jokes instead. <laughs> all right. I'm going to be jumping into the series on Romans today. Um, <laughs> it's funny, eh? <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, actually, everybody's going to be jumping into the series on Romans for the next year. So, uh, and uh, I, love, uh, I love Chris Dirksen's creativity, you know. What should we call a series on Romans? Oh, I know. Romans. <laughs> so we are, but I'm going to put a little bit of my own spin on it today. Uh, so I got a better slide than that. Guys, go ahead. Move ahead. There you go. I'm doing white on gray. It's very classy. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to be jumping ahead because Chris told me he has ideas for a lot of Romans already. So I'm jumping forward to Romans 13 to four little verses in there. And I want to read them to you now. So it says, besides this, Knowing the time, it is already the hour for you to wake from sleep, for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, and the daylight is near, so let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency, as in the daylight, not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on Jesus Christ and make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. And let's pray. Father, thank you that when we wake up in the morning, we can put you on, and we can clothe ourselves with you, and that you can make a difference in our lives. And Jesus, I pray that for all my brothers and sisters in this room, that we would leave today closer to you than when we came. I pray that you would do a work in our hearts like only the Spirit can. Amen. Now, there are times when you look at a passage and you're like, oh, how can I be creative or clever with this or whatever? And you know what? And then there's other times that it's just you got to go with the plain reading. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to take you through some of my thoughts that I, I went through as I was reading this passage. And I want you to see sometimes how other people maybe read the Bible. And, and I've been reading this passage obviously very slowly and carefully for a, a week and a half or two weeks now. And there's really powerful reminders in it. So you might not hear earth-shattering stuff today, but that doesn't mean that the foundational powerful truth in a simple passage isn't really, really important. And in fact, it might even be profound. The first thing I do when I look at a verse like this is I wonder who was it written to? Now clearly Romans was written to Romans, right? But I was looking and thinking about it. there was a certain kind of Roman that it was being written to, a certain kind of Roman Christian that it was being written to. It was being written to a group of Christians who used to be Jews. 
And they were kind of bent on holding on to the laws of Moses, and so there was a lot of rules and legalism to them. And Paul was addressing that all through Romans. But it it was written to Christians. It was written to the Roman church. And if you think about it very carefully, that actually poses a problem. At least it did in my mind. It, It raised a very big thought. If this is written for Christians, then how does this make sense? You see, you can read Paul's other letters. You can see the, the letter he wrote to the Corinthians or Ephesians or Galatians, you know, where he says, you, you foolish Galatians, you know. And he, he reprimands the churches that he's planted, his friends, and he says, like, straighten up, clean up your act and that sort of thing. So you can understand that a command like walk with decency, that makes good sense. You know, even for Paul to tell the Romans to wake up from sleep, this makes sense because there's other places where Paul tells believers to kind of wake up, stir from your slumber. It's time, right? But that last phrase made me a little uncomfortable. I couldn't understand what it meant. And it's, uh, it's right in there, and it's, it talks about clothe yourselves with Christ. My translation said, put on Christ. Other translations say, clothe yourselves with Christ. Now, why would that be an issue? It's an issue because that means that if, if he's telling us to clothe ourselves in Christ, that means essentially there's Christians walking around who aren't clothed in Christ. They're naked. We've got naked Christians on our hands. At least they did in Romans. And that made me nervous. It made me nervous to think that people who had identified with Jesus Christ we're not walking in a such way, and we're commanded that they should put on Christ. I thought, well, this should be written to non-believers, because it's probably when you become a Christian that you put on Christ. Kind of like when you become a Christian, you get the Holy Spirit, but that's not what he's talking about. Because he says, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Well, it can only be nearer for those who first believed if they're Christians already, so he must be talking to Christians, which means he's talking to us, which means that we need to figure out what clothe yourselves with Christ means. I found that unsettling. Now, as, as, many, as is the case in many places in the Bible, such as Galatians 5, Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. When it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, it starts with a list of ne- a negative definition. Or does it start or end with it? I'm not quite sure. But there's a negative definition. Don't do this. Don't do this. Like that would be evidence that you are, do not have the fruit of the Spirit. And then it moves into a positive definition. So we can know negatively what this verse means by what it's telling you not to do. So if you want to be clothed with Christ, you're going to avoid what Paul calls the deeds of darkness. So what are those deeds of darkness? It's carousing and drunkenness, sexual impurity and promiscuity, quarreling and jealousy. So if you're involved in those things, then you are not being clothed with Christ. You have not put on Christ. And that's helpful. And the reason they're called the deeds of darkness is because especially the first two groups, or the first two pairs, they're carousing, drunkenness, sexual impurity, and promiscuity. Those were all activities that happened in the dark. They were, they were behind closed doors. They were at night when, you know, sensible, respectable people were in their beds and sleeping. And so they are called the deeds of darkness. And then he goes on to say, there's only, the problem with this, unlike Galatians 5, is that there's only two other statements that would be sort of positive, and they're not really that much more clear. One of them is to put on the armor of light and to walk with decency. 
And what, what's interesting with all three, actually, statements, like clothe yourself with Christ, put on the armor of light, walk with decency, if you think about it, they're all kind of dressing-type illusions. You know, putting something on, being dressed, being clothed, being decent. Because walking with decency, that isn't hard to understand. It means don't be perverse, right? That's what it means, be a decent person. We also understand armor. Armor is very good. You see my little guy running there? I thought he needed some armor, so I put some armor on him. There we go. And uh, he needs a helmet too, so I put some armor on my running dude. That's terribly funny, guys. Um, and that probably took me half an hour, so you better enjoy it. Armor, we understand, <clears throat> is used to defend yourself. I mean, that only makes sense. We don't wear armor today. I mean, I guess police officers wear body armor and, and soldiers do as well, but the average person doesn't wear armor. And so, but what I like about this is that when you look at that word uh, in the Greek, it's hoplon. And if you, if you do a search for that word, what you find is that it's not always just armor, it's sometimes weapons. So in fact, one of the translation, I think it was the King James, said, let us put on the weapons of light. So there is this sense, and we know from Ephesians 6 that there is, you know, the, the, um, the spiritual warfare and the, the armor of God and that sort of thing. So we understand a little bit about armor in a spiritual sense as well. But in the same breath, Paul says there's, uh, there's also, that we also need to clothe ourselves. And, and by the way, it's just as scary to me that he would say that you need to pick up weapons and fight. That's scary to me too because it means there's a whole bunch of, of Christians out there who aren't either defending themselves and they certainly aren't taking, terri, taking territory offensively because they're being told to put on the armor or take up the weapons. But what does he mean then when he goes on to say, clothe yourselves with Christ? What does he mean? Thankfully, that phrase was actually very common in Greek. It was a common Greek phrase. We don't use it anymore, clearly. But to clothe yourself meant that you would assume the interests of another, to enter his or her views, to imitate him and be wholly on his side. That's what it meant. So philosophers, a student of a philosopher might say that he had clothed himself with Plato or clothed himself with Aristotle. Um, there's a, an example. Eusebius in the life of Constantine says that some of his sons put on their father. They seemed to enter into his spirit and his views and imitate him all things. This mode of speech was taken from the custom of stage players. Okay, so it was a stage player. They assumed the name and, uh, and garments of the person whose character they were to act out and endeavored as closely as possible to imitate him in their spirit, words, and actions. So you get a movie like, you know, The Iron Lady, where you have somebody um, um, being, acting, the, the, acting the part, right? Or you have uh, political parodies where people act the part. They are clothing themselves in the person that they're meant to copy, that they're meant to act. Now, this is very relevant because suddenly when we talk about clothing ourselves, we don't have sort of an abstract, although it's a good visual, it's kind of abstract in that we don't know what he actually means. Like, what does it mean practically to clothe yourself? Now that we know that it means to imitate someone, well, that makes a lot of sense. So to clothe yourselves with Christ means to, uh, to imitate him. This is very relevant. And what Paul was saying to the church, what Paul was saying about the church in Rome was that there are Christians who were not imitating Christ in their spirit, words, and actions. They had fallen asleep, or worse, 
They had been carousing through the night, and they were found sleeping at the dawn. Heaven forbid that describes one of us. To be found sleeping at the dawn. Now, two weeks ago, Pastor Chris gave us a really great message about the nature of our salvation. He talked about salvation. It's appropriated. It's taken on entirely by faith and without works. It's a process called justification. You can't do anything to work up the love that God has for you. You can't do anything in order to pay the spiritual debt that you owe because it's a spiritual debt and you can't pay a spiritual debt. He needed to pay it for you because of the terms of the agreement. It would be something that we were wholly unable to do. But that's not what Paul is talking about when he speaks of clothing yourself with Christ. He's not talking about that first act. Now, I have an example for you. I went to Bible school in Austria, and I have a couple of pictures for you. They're a little dark because this was like decades before digital cameras. And so uh, these had to be scanned on a computer, young people. And uh, they're in a photo album. (laughs) And uh, so I had to take them out. No, go back. Go back for a second. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, guys. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about mountain climbing in Austria. It's terribly much fun. I, uh, I have not really done it since because it was fun but awful all at the same time. Okay? Now, what we have here is a place where we were going to be uh, practicing our climbing. That's what we were going to be doing. This was on the first tour in the mountains. This is in, uh, by the way, I should back up. I went to Tauernhof, which is a Bible school in Austria. And I know some other people went there, too. Go Tauernhof. Um, It was very fun, and I went there eight days after I graduated, and I did a summer program called Upward Bound. It was in the mountains most of the time. And uh, we slept in caves, which is awful, but that's another story. And then we slept in tents that reminded me of caves, and that was awful. (laughs) I would wake up screaming to my poor tent mate's chagrin. Anyways, this is where we were going to practice climbing. So you can see we were belaying people and that sort of thing, getting rocks kicked down on us. And, uh, but you can see the guys are climbing up the spine of that... um, of that uh, precipice or whatever you call it. And go to the next slide because I want to show you how narrow it is. It's very narrow. So on this side, it was, I don't know, maybe five meters down, not that far, like you'd survive. But on the other side, it was 300 meters straight down. So you could kind of go six meters, 300 meters, six meters, 300 meters. You could go back and forth. And it was terrifying because I'm terrified of heights in addition to being claustrophobic. And And what's really embarrassing is that our director, Hans-Peter Royer, his son, who was seven, went up to test the ropes for us. (laughs) So you got to go after that, right? But what are they doing? They're setting up a rope with anchors along the spine of this mountain. Now, this is called a klettersteig. I'm sure I'm uh, brutalizing that word, but it's called a klettersteig. Um, And you can find these klettersteigs not made of ropes, but made of iron cables all throughout the Alps. In fact, there are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kilometers of cable that are anchored every 3 to 10 meters into the rock that you can use to climb with. And so what you do is, and this one was a rope, we put it up ourselves, um, but the Austrian mountain um, rescue team, they put up all those other ones. And, and what happens is you can, you, ha- you have your, your, um, your harness on, and you have two short ropes with carabiners on, and so you, you, which are hooks. And so you walk along, and then when you get to an anchor, you take one off at a time, you put it around the anchor, then you're secure, you take the other one off, you put it on the other side, and you keep going. All right? That's what you do when you're walking with the Klettersteig. And here are some other pictures you can see. This is... Uh, 
a terrifying shot. By the way, there were yodelers that day. You wouldn't think they still exist, but they do. They were yodeling somewhere in the valley, and their voices were carrying up. It's bizarre. It's like straight out of the sound of music. I expected a girl to run over a mountain with a dress. <laughs> Okay, go ahead, next picture. I just wanted to prove to you that I had actually climbed, so that's me climbing. I'm wearing a do-rag, bandana. I had just cut my finger really bad, so I bled all the way up for the person behind me. <laughs> that's a good memory. Uh, okay, and then the next one, the reason I'm showing you this one, this one's very hard, and small, but you can see on the peak, like right on the top of that mountain, you see that little tiny winding path? It doesn't look that scary, but in places it was really, really sharp drop-off. So all the way along here, in different sections, there were Klettersteigs, and we would walk along them. Now this is the thing. We had to do no effort in putting those up. All done for us. It was all done for us. The mountain rescue team had gone, they had, and I mean, they checked them yearly, hundreds of kilometers, and you'd constantly meet people walking along the mountain with their harnesses, and in some places it's really dangerous. And in fact, um, even though we did no work to put the cables and the ropes there, someone else did, and you could still die on a klettersteig. You could still die. If you weren't careful, if you were wearing the wrong shoes, had the wrong equipment, if you didn't have a guide, you could die. In fact, our guide, Hans-Peter Royer, who was not only the director of the school, but he was also uh, part of the mountain rescue team, he would point out where people had died <laughs> as we were climbing. And this is where I found a man dangling from his rope. <laughs> and so he'd say something like, so I picked up, well, one time he was climbing a, a, a thousand meter vertical face. It's the highest vertical face in the Austrian Alps called the Dachstein. And a man fell down beside him. To the bottom. So I went to the bottom and I picked up the pieces of his body and I carried them back to his family. <laughs> Very unemotional. Austrian, you know, German. So, <clears throat> so he was pointing this out all the time and I only told my mom, of course, after I got home that we could have died at any moment. <clears throat> but the point is this, even though you're safe, like really you are quite safe if you're wise, if you're careful, if you're with a group, if you're not, you know, hiking at dark, if you fall and, you know, you knock yourself out, you're not going to get very cold. All these things, you take precautions, but if you think that there's no effort involved, you're kidding yourself. Even though those anchors were there, you still had to put in an effort. You still had to put in an effort. Now, Chris told us about salvation being not of works. And that's true, but there is still effort involved. You see, it doesn't matter how you wake up in the morning. It doesn't matter how you wake up, whether you wake up to an alarm or to kids, or you just allow your body to wake you up effortlessly. You still have to choose to get up. Every morning, you still have to choose to put on your clothes. Every morning. And every morning, the Christian has to choose to put on Christ. Every morning. And there's effort involved. You see, there's a sense in which you can't be saved through works. Uh, there is a sense in which you can't be saved by works, but there are, is a sense in which works is required for remaining saved. There is actually a sense in that. Now, if you don't like the word works, call it effort. Call it effort. There's an effort involved in remaining safely saved. Now, I'm not talking about an effort to make God happy. You know, he's not some capricious, 
mythological Greek god, you know, who would come down and, and wipe out entire populations, right? That's not, that's not the god we worship. He's not capricious. He's not evil like that. And Scripture is clear that, you, that nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand, but being snatched away is very different from not doing the things that would keep you safely there. It's very different. It means that you can't be robbed of your salvation. Well, thank goodness. But that doesn't mean that there's not effort involved. Salvation is actually rightly understood in three senses. In three senses. And in, Ro uh, in Romans 13, verse 11, which is my passage for today, Paul uses two senses in the first verse. He uses two senses in which salvation is used all throughout the Bible. The first sense is called justification. This is what Chris talked about. In that message, he quoted this. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. A gift is not something you can earn. It's not something you can buy. It's freely given, and you have to receive it. But by the way, even receiving a gift, you have to open it, and it takes effort. It does. And anybody who's walked to the front of a church to be saved knows that it took effort to get off the seat. They know that. So there is somewhat of an effort, a decision that is made even in our salvation. Here, salvation is called justified. It's a gift which you cannot earn. That, in that sense, you might rightly say, we have been saved. We have been saved. But there is also a sense in which we are being saved. We are being saved. Not in the sense that you're rescued from hell every day, and you need to rededicate your life and become a Christian every morning. But there is a sense in which we are being saved. The penalty of sin has been canceled, but we still sin. Now the process, and, and, that, and the, this process of being saved is really called becoming like Jesus. That's what it's called. And uh, the, the theological term is sanctification. That's what it means to be sanctified, to be made holy, to become like Jesus. And then there is a final sense which the Bible speaks of, which is like our ultimate salvation when we graduate from earth, receive our glorified bodies, and are free from sin and bondage. That final sense in which we'll be saved is called glorification. Now, that hasn't happened yet. We will be saved one day, though. We will be saved. Finally, completely saved. And that will be a great thing. So I am saved. I am being saved. And I will be saved. And the Bible talks about salvation in all three of these ways. In all three of these ways. In each way, what you need to understand is that God has a role to play, and God always initiates, and God always invites, and God does the bulk of the work. But there is always a responsibility on the part of the person. Always. It's reciprocal. Step towards me, step towards you. It's reciprocal. There is something you need to do. Even, even if you can't earn your salvation, you still need to decide whether you're going to cooperate with God. That's what it says in Luke 13, verse 24. It says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to do. They won't be able to. So there is an effort involved in seeking salvation. It is. Glorification has the least engagement because I don't know how after you're dead whether you can refuse your glorified body. I don't think that's possible. So glorification is kind of mostly or all on God's shoulders. Sanctification, however, the second sense in which the Bible talks about salvation, this is the sense that actually requires the most human effort. 
It's the most human effort. Over and over in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were told to sanctify themselves. Sanctify yourself. And it was usually before God did something big. So before he led them out of Egypt, he said, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow God's going to show up in a powerful way. Or before they went into the promised land, Joshua said, sanctify yourselves. Make things right. Get yourself close to God because tomorrow we're doing a holy work. And this also talks about that in Samuel when they anointed a new king in Israel. Uh, before they anointed David, the whole, the whole family of David, Jesse's family, sanctified themselves. They sanctified themselves. Now, could they actually sanctify themselves? Eh, not quite, but there was effort involved. And God met them in that and helped them with it. Now, it's in this sense in which God, uh, Paul is telling the Romans to clothe themselves in Christ. And this is the effort of getting dressed each morning. It's imitating Christ in our lives. That is the effort. Sanctification is the battle of becoming like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. And I'll show you in three passages. Hebrews 10 says this, For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of truth. So after you've received the knowledge of truth, you're saved. There is no, and, and the we there, he's talking to Christians, by the way. That's the context. There, is no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, the, fiery, uh, the fury of a fire to consume the adversaries. You see, we, it's not as if when you, become, when you get saved, Chris talked about it, it's a little bit like a courtroom. It's a justification, you know, the gavel and the judge and all that. But you know what? It's interesting. You can actually put yourself in front of a judge again. You can, and that's, by the way, what we do when we confess our sins. We come to him, say, sorry, Please pardon me. And he looks at you and he says, oh yes, oh yes. And, but you can go in front of the judge again. Believe me, I know that. Because I'm on the alternative justice committee in this town. And we see repeat offenders. <laughs> we try to help people stay out of the law. But you wouldn't believe how many times you hear the same name on the docket. They go before the judge and go before the judge. They get let off, they get let off, they get let off. And then finally there's a price to pay. And it's the same thing with us. We have to own our salvation or our sanctification. Second Peter says this, Therefore, dear friends, also Christians, while you wait for these things, which is the return of the Lord, make every effort to be found at peace with him without spot or blemish. Make every effort. You have to work at this. Second Corinthians 7 verse 1, Therefore, friends, since we have such promises, let us clothe our, cleanse ourselves with every impurity of the flesh and spirit, completing our sanctification in the fear of the Lord. Completing our sanctification, cleansing ourselves. We have to own it. I, was, I remember a conversation I had with Pastor Ray. He probably doesn't remember this, and that's okay. Because it's not actually that important. But I just remember we were talking about the Holy Spirit. And I said, doesn't it feel like the older you get, and I was actually asking him because I wanted to know what it was like when he was at his age. Um, <laughs> like, doesn't it feel with the Holy Spirit, like at first when you're young, he, he's like this, come, come along. You know, come along. Let me, let me help you along. Come on, son. Come on. And then the older you get, it's a little bit more like this. <laughs> you know, Tom, Tom, <laughs> like, you know, we've been through this. We've worked on the relationship. You know what to do. Now let's get moving. It's a little bit like that. There's an expectation that is higher for us. Sanctification is that process of being made holy, more like Jesus, Perfect. That's what sanctification is. The great news is that perfection, perfection is not a requirement for entering heaven. It's not. But there are two things that I want to point out. 
even though perfection is not necessary for entering heaven or it would be a very lonely place, you still need to be engaged in the effort of sanctification, number one. And number two, eternal life and eternal rewards are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. Eternal life is the greatest gift that the Bi- and the Bible is, is the greatest gift, and we can get that freely. But the Bible is clear that there will be a degree of reward in heaven based on the decisions you make on earth. There will be. In Matthew 16, verse 27, it says, The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. He's talking about real deeds. Real deeds. He's not saying that everybody who's become a Christian, that's the only thing you have to do. No, these are real deeds. It's going to be, it's going to be a reward system in heaven. And I'm looking forward to that. I'm, I'm motivated by rewards. I really am. Ask my wife. Like, <laughs> this, uh, this last Christmas, you guys, this last Christmas, Chris would make those jokes, but I would not. I would not. This Christmas, I took two and a half weeks off of, uh, off of work. It was wonderful. I had a staycation, stayed at home, and I completed. We've been living in our house for two years, and I completed every project on the list. It's done. In- inside, don't clap. The outside still needs a little work, okay? Yeah, but it's very good. Two weeks. I had them all on the list last year. I didn't complete a single one. I didn't even start a single one. This year, I completed them all. And, um, um, but this is what my wife would do. I, I did a backsplash. It was awful. Awful. I have, I have no words to describe how awful doing backsplashes are. But I, all the way through, I just kept telling myself, Grace Fast did this. Grace Fast did this. She's told me about how she did a backsplash. So I kept going. And, uh, but my wife would say, Tom, if you do the backsplash today, why don't you, then you can go out in the shop and do some woodworking or carving after. Okay. So I would go to work, you know, on, on knowing that there was a prize. I was going to get alone time in the shop afterwards. Prize, rewards, motivate me. And that's really good. That's really good. We should be motivated, and you should be motivated in your Christian walk by rewards. You're actually built that way. You want a promotion at work. You do. Because you're built that way. You want to see your kids succeed because you're built that way. You want to see it, and it takes effort. I think one of the problems is that the church often talks about only the first part of salvation. They make the first sense of salvation, the decision or conversion, the end-all, be-all. But if you stay there, if you only stay at a conversion and never move past it, or if you stall there as a Christian, do you know what? You're not going to be fulfilled as a Christian. I promise you. You're going to be a bored Christian. Because it's only when we move into the working for God, into the job that he has for us, that we begin to feel fulfilled. This means the Christian life is meant to be active, tiring, and all-in, no-holds-barred, sweaty, bare-knuckled battle to the end. That's what it's meant to be. It's meant to be hard work. And that's good. We're soft. (laughs) I'm soft. (laughs) In other words, in other, in other words, if you are saved, truly saved, guess what? You will actually do things. You will actually do things. And this is the great thing. You will actually begin to do things if you are saved. And that's one of the marks that you are saved. When you understand these things, uh, then you will understand passages like what Paul said in Philippians 2 verse 12. He said, so then, 
My dear friends, just as you, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even now more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not talking about initial salvation. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the ongoing work of salvation. It's this bare-knuckled fight to the end. That's what it is. And then, uh, and by the way, uh, when you look up, when you get 1,500 meters up on a Kletterstag, and you look down, and you're tired, and you don't think you can go on. What are you going to do? you got to knuckle down and get to the top. I had one girl stop climbing on me once. I was leader of the day, LOD, the LOD. And uh, I was kind of a different leader then. And uh, I would kind of motivate people by walking about 18 meters in front of them and yelling at them to hurry up. And so I turned around, and this girl on my team, Rose, had just decided to sit down on a mountain. We are like 25 kilometers in both directions from home. You can't sit down, sweetheart. Like, you've got to get up and keep moving. I, I didn't know what to say, so I laughed. <laughs> I was very insensitive. I did worse things than that. I'm a very different person. <laughs> but you've got to get up. You've got to keep going. There's nothing. You can't sit there. And the great thing is, the second part of this passage is God's part. Look what it says. Verse 13, For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to what? Desire and to work out his good process. You see, we're in a partnership. We have a good coach. We have a motivational speaker. We have a leader who's not 18 feet in front of us looking back and yelling at us. He's with us along the way. He's getting his knuckles bloody too. That's our God. That's the one we worship. But we still have to move with him. We're in a partnership with God. We're to work out our salvation as best we are able, and it's God who gives us the motivation and ability to do it in the first place. You know, this whole notion that you don't have to do anything as a Christian is just such a silly notion. It's ridiculous. Jesus, um, Jesus warns in Matthew 24 that your love can grow cold. So you've got to keep that thing kindled. In Leviticus, it talks about keeping the, the, uh, the fire burning on the altar. You've got to keep stoking the fire. You've got to make it to the end. And do you know what? I think one of the greatest secrets of the Christian life is, I think one of the greatest secrets to a fulfilled Christian life is determining in your heart that the effort to clothe yourself in Christ is not a burden but a delight. The greatest secret of a fulfilled Christian life is determining in your heart that the effort to clothe yourself in Christ is not a burden but a delight. It's a delight. In my third year of university, I decided I was never going to write another paper for a professor. And what I mean by that is this. I was never going to write in a way that they, in a way that wasn't natural to me. I was going to start writing papers the way I wanted to write papers because I was sick of writing papers the way, you know, and, and worrying about what they were thinking and trying to get into their head and, you know, doing. I wanted to just start enjoying papers, and so I did. And I started writing papers that were very unusual. They were funny. So my soils and vegetation professor exciting course, you can imagine. It's a course on dirt and trees. Um, he would write on the end of my research paper, very unusual approach. <laughs> and you know what? My marks didn't slide because I was a BB plus student all the way through and I was having more fun. It wasn't a burden anymore. It was a delight. I was having fun. I'm going to do something now that I don't usually do. In fact, there's two things I'm going to do right now. The first thing is I'm going to quote off of Facebook. The second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to quote Chris Puhatch off of Facebook. <laughs> this is what Chris wrote this week. And, it, and when I was preparing the message, I thought of it. I went back and I copied it. 
He says, often we see living fully for Jesus, that is, the radicals, locally or globally, and we may be tempted to think, by the way, this is just rife with grammatical errors, so I judged him pretty harshly already. Nonetheless, you might be tempted to think, wow, the cost is so high, or that seems like such a limited life. However, if you ask the radical, they will primarily speak of joy. Isn't it ironic that many conclude that such radicals have undesirable lives, and yet it's the radicals that carry something deep inside that everyone longs for? The key in all of this is this deep-rooted joy is abandonment, single-mindedness, and losing one's life for Jesus. We need not be afraid, as this is the journey that leads us to what we are really looking for. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And by the way, did you know that you can actually measure your desire to follow Jesus and your love for him by how much you're willing to do for him? You actually can. You know, I don't like legalism. I really don't. I don't like the idea, you know, I've really wrestled with getting up early and doing devotions over the years. I love it now. You know why I love it? Because I can't get past the fact that every single giant in the faith gets up early. You read their biographies. Every single one spends inordinate amount of time in devotions. Martin Luther said, I have so much to do today, I need to spend two hours in prayer instead of one. You can't get past it. So you either, you either embrace it and start to love it, or you lead a boring Christian life. You can tell, by the way, it's the same as in a marriage. If there's no effort in your marriage. You see, the point of getting married is not the wedding. That's a fun one day, one evening. But the point is life together afterwards. And if you think you're going to have a happy marriage without any effort, you're kidding yourself. Amen. (laughs) And this is because you were created to do a kingdom work. You were created to do a kingdom work. And I want to tell you something now. I want to explain to you why. It's actually in your DNA. Not Not only is it fulfilling... But it's actually built into you in your DNA. And I want to show you something. And the way I'm going to do it is this. I I need to explain to you something about the Old Testament. And then you're going to understand how profoundly God not only would like you to work, but how much he actually needs you to work. Okay? Look at this. Okay. There's a little known concept. It's going to feel like I'm off course here for a little bit. Just give me, just uh, come along. Okay? Just be patient. There's a little known or a little uh, talked about concept in the Bible. It's called the counsel of God. So we're going to take my runner and give, make him an angel. Go ahead, guys. Make him an angel. There we go. Now, most Christians know that by the time God started creating the world, there were angels on the scene, correct? You know there were angels. But not everybody knows that some of the angels on the scene were more active in creation than others. In fact, they actually had a part in helping make decisions about how the world was created. And these were what's called the counsel of God. Okay? The Council of God. They were a group of very powerful angels. You see, there were different classes of angels. There were cherubim, seraphim, uh, and then you had this Council of God. And in later times, they became known as watchers or observers. They also became known as archangels. So the archangels are a real thing. They're a different class of angel. They're very, very powerful. And that's the class from which Gabriel, Michael, Lucifer, those guys all came from. Now, Lucifer was all obviously quite bad. So these archangels in... Um, in Hebrew, it's called B'nai Elohim. And we, we read about them, but we don't know what we're reading. 
And they have a very important role to play in Scripture. Uh, I'll just give you some verses to show you where they are. Uh, in Job, we can read about these powerful beings presenting themselves before God. It says in Job 1, verse 6, on, the, on one day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Okay? So you can read about that. In another place, Job says, well, actually his friends say, do you listen in on the counsel of God? There's the counsel of God. Or, uh, or have a monopoly on wisdom? You know who he's talking about there? Prophets. Prophets in the Old Testament were considered to have access room to the council room of God, where the council of God sat, okay? And it talks about that in Jeremiah 23, verse 16 to 18. Now, this is what the Lord of hosts says. Do not listen to the words of the prophets. Do, uh, sorry, this is what the Lord of hosts says. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They are making you worthless. They speak from their own minds, not from the Lord's mouth. They keep saying to those who des- uh, they keep on saying to those who despise me, "The Lord has said, you will have peace." They have said to everyone who follows, they have said to everyone who follows. This is hard. What does matter with me? This doesn't even have hard names in it. They have said to everyone who follows the stubbornness of heart of his heart, no harm will come to you. For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear His word? Who has paid attention to His word and obeyed? So there is this idea that these angels were involved in delivering messages and important work in fighting other angels. In Daniel, it talks about this very powerful angel coming against the prince of Persia, which was a very powerful demonic angel, and they fought. You know, it was awesome. Very epic. Believe me, when you begin to understand this, the Bible becomes epic. There's a story in Daniel 4 where it's explicit what their job is. It's explicit. And I won't read the whole thing for you because we don't have time. But this is the point where uh, Belshazzar, not Belshazzar, that's Daniel, but Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And in that dream, he saw birds settling in, tr- in, his, in a tree, a big great tree, it covered the whole earth, all that stuff, okay? And then someone came along and lopped off that tree, okay? They lopped off that tree. And uh, what happens next is in the dream, He's talking here about the, the, the dream, and he says, The king saw an observer, a holy one, that's one of these powerful angels, coming down from heaven, saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump with its roots in the ground, with a band of iron and bronze around it, and the tender grass of the field, let it be drenched with dew from the sky, and, uh, and, uh, and share food with the wild animals for seven periods of time. This is the interpretation. Uh, Daniel saying, Your majesty, the king, and this sentence of the Most High that has been passed against you, my Lord and King, you will be driven away from the people. And then he became like a crazy man, okay? So what's happening is Nebuchadnezzar is living on earth and he's living completely arrogantly. His, his, his uh, empire has crossed the world and he's become proud. And he has a dream and in his dream, an angel from heaven comes down and observes him. And then that angel turns around and says, God, you know what we should do? We should make him crazy. And God's like, great idea, right? <laughs> this counsel of God was active, They were interacting with God. Now, if you were going to sum up what their job was, this is what it would be. To rule the heavens. The council of God was meant to, technically, co-rule the heavens. That's what they were meant to do. You know where else that word rule was used? Of us. In Genesis 1, verse 28, it says, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Now, are we allowed to rule it without God? No, of course not. But God put people on earth so that the Garden of Eden would cover the whole globe. That's what he wanted to do. 
He, his original plan, see the Garden of Eden was not on the whole world at the, at the time in Genesis 1. That's not where it was. It was in a little tiny place in Iraq of all places. And we know where it was because the rivers are still there today. And from that point, the whole, the whole point of Adam and Eve was be fruitful, multiply, and you and your kids and the people that come after you, you're going to actually manage the earth. And by the way, we have a lot of authority in that, don't we? We do. If you want to go today and dump a whole bunch of stuff in the Red River, you can. You can pollute it. You can, you can mistreat the very thing that God has asked you to take care of. You can mistreat it. And we have a lot of authority. We can even ruin each other's lives. We can do it. That's how much authority God has for us. And he intended for it to be good and for us to rule. So this, this counsel of God, which God worked with, the point is they would rule the heavenlies and us, people, were meant to rule the earth. That's what you were made for. That's actually what you were made for. And one day, guess what? Heaven and earth will kiss again. And they'll intersect in a, in a garden, perhaps. And we'll be able to take the rightful spots that God has created us for. And that's going to be an incredible day. And we're going to be able to help manage the earth into the Eden that it was meant to be. And you know, that's why everybody has a job to do. Everybody has a job to play in moving towards the ultimate goal of God's restored kingdom on earth. Every single person. It's built into your DNA. What's your specific job description? I have no idea. But it's a divine job description. I guarantee you. And by the way, it's awesome. I can guarantee you that it's awesome. You know how I know that it's awesome? Because any job where you're told to put on armor <laughs> is an awesome job. It's an awesome job. You could be a chocolate bar wrapper in the Hershey Chocolate Factory. And if you had to wear armor for that job, it'd be awesome. Why? Because you never know when the guys from Nestle are going to swoop in, you know? <laughs> Fisticuffs, you know? It's going to be any job, any boring job that you do with armor becomes an epic job immediately. And any job that God has asked you to do, you're going to need spiritual armor for. So it is epic. Wonderful. You know, the stakes have never been higher either. The stakes are extremely high. Paul says it's urgent. The time is near. We need to get moving, right? And you might be tempted to say, you might be lulled into this false sense of security going, wait a second, everybody has always said that the end is near, including Pastor Ray, that we're getting closer and closer to the end. But you know what? We are. And you know what? We don't know when the end will come, but you know what? We should live as if it's very soon. You know, there's an illustration I remember from Bible school. Hans Peter told it to us. It's about a chauffeur. But a man who wanted to hire a chauffeur. So he had three different uh, people come and uh, interview for the job. The first guy sat in the car, and the way they would do the, the interviews, they would go up onto a steep mountain pass. And there was a, a sharp hairpin turn, right? And the first chauffeur said, oh, this is no problem. I'm going to take it fast. And he went up, and he went around that, and he squealed the tires and didn't go into the, you know, didn't kill his employer, potential employer. And that's all good. It was great. Got back down. He says, you're a very good driver. He says, thank you. The next driver got up. He says, you think that's something? He went up and he drove so fast, he put the back end of the, of the car over the edge and he spun dirt 
into the valley below. Crazy. He says, I could do this all day long. I'm that good of a driver. But then the third chauffeur got in, and he sat down, and he drove. And he drove like an old grandpa. And he went up, and he got to that corner, and he slowed right down, and then he hugged the mountain, and he went around. You know why? Because he didn't want to kill the guy he was driving. He wasn't going to take unnecessary risks. That's not what this was about. Who got hired? The third one, right? And you see, if, if we knew where the edge was, you know what our human tendency would be? To live as close to the edge as possible without going over. That's why God doesn't give us a date. It's his mercy. He says, I want to motivate you. If I told you the exact, if you knew you were going to die, you know, there's movies that are being made, you know, about, you know, you, you have 30 days to live or, you know, something like that. If you knew we're gonna, you were going to, you would, you would go, you would live for those last 30 days. But that's not what God wanted. God wanted you to live as if every day was your last day, as if it could happen at any time. That's the urgency that we're supposed to live in. And actually, the stakes are really high, and we need to take this thing really seriously. If we knew when Christ was going to return, instead of watching the ever-increasing signs, we wouldn't live with any urgency. And if people lived out of any sense of urgency, we wouldn't have William Wilberforce's in the world. We wouldn't have Mother Teresa's in the world. We wouldn't have Paul the Apostle's in the world the world. We wouldn't have them because there'd be no urgency and human nature puts on the brakes. We've been made for a purpose. And this purpose, and at this moment in history, you will not truly live until you live with that purpose. Do you know what paradise lost is? Paradise lost is far more than a sentimental memory of a long forgotten garden. It's not the memory of Eden. That's not paradise lost. Do you know what paradise lost is? It's the loss of a divine job description. Are you a bored Christian? You know, if you want to, you can do the minimal effort. You can sleepwalk your way right into heaven. But you will not live a fulfilled life. The Bible says you're a sleeper. And in Ephesians, Paul tells his friends in Ephesus, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. The divine task that Jesus has for you is the peace that you might be missing in your life. You'll never slumber again if you accept his calling. You won't be able to because you don't want to fall asleep on the battlefield, right? So accept what God is asking you to do and go all in. I have a challenge for you. I'd like you to consider the question this week. Do I fall more on the works side or the faith side of salvation? Ask the Lord to reveal to your heart. Are you living balanced? Do you have a good sense of what your duty is and what the Lord's asking you to do? Do you work hard or do you leave it all on the Lord? Are you balanced? I think it was Spurgeon who said, when I pray, I pray as if everything depended on God, and when I preach, I preach as if everything depended on me. Are you balanced? Think about the three senses in which we are being saved. Have you surrendered your life? Reflect on your conversion. By the way, reflecting on your conversion is very good. We do that often in our family. Do you strive for holiness in your life? Confess and repent if you need. Do you think about heaven and anticipate it with praise? Do you know what God is asking you to do? Do you have a sense of a holy call or direction in your life for this year, no matter what your age? No matter what your age, do you know what it is? Ask the Lord for his vision. And then finally, if you're a parent, I wrote a blog talking, it's, it went up already, it's talking about how to help your kids put on Christ every morning. So you might want to take this into your family. Let's pray. 
Father, don't let us slumber in our hearts. I pray, God, that we would be very alive in our spirits. And I pray that we would embrace the way that we were created to live, not riding on someone's coattails, not accepting the fact that we became a Christian way back when and being okay with that. No, we got to live now as if the end is near, the urge, there's urgency to be had, and as if we have a job to do. Because we do. We do. You have something for us to do. And so, God, I pray that we'd step into that thing that you're asking of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.